0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and what you owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Welcome to Her Money. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. I am in the studio in New York, and I am having a really good hair day. And I'm just so happy about that because I'm sitting here with Amy Errett, who is founder and CEO of Madison Reed. And if you listen to radio, in addition to podcasts, then you absolutely know who she is. She's started this beauty brand that is revolutionizing the hair color space. And I met Amy, I don't know, a few months ago in California. I was moderating a panel at Mika Brzezinski's Know Your Value conference. Amy was on it. I knew her because I heard her voice across the room before I even spoke to her because she does commercials for her company. And so she's very, very recognizable. And when she said she was going to be in town, we were eager to grab her. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jean. I'm really happy to be here. I feel like I need to tell everybody, because I I talk about my life on this show sometimes, and one of the things that I have been talking about is that since the start of the year, I started meditating, and I have you to thank for that. I have tried to start many times in the past, and I'm not exactly sure what you said or how you said it that made me download the Headspace app, start using it, and not stop using it. But for anybody else who wants to change their life, what's your line on that?
2: So if I remember correctly, we were actually getting on an elevator in sort of a two-second interaction after the panel. And um, I think the, the concept of busy mind came up. And there were, I think, were three or four of us in the elevator. And I said, do any of you meditate? And uh, I don't think anybody um, that was in the elevator meditated. And I think you mentioned I've tried it a couple times, but it's hard for me. And I just shared uh, the positive impact it's had on my life. I work out physically. I think we talked about this. We did. And you do, too. So I look at it as it's just mind fitness. The same way I look at just, you know, physically, you want to be fit. You know, our minds in this day and age are filled with so many different thoughts at rapid pace every single minute, right? Media constantly, right, on my phone constantly. And so what I've found is my life just goes better when I meditate. There's just no—it has been a life-saving event. I I have ADD. Mm. So some of this also is that I think I have a busier mind than maybe some, and it just helps me calm down, breathe. Uh, I start every meeting at my company with ten breaths for everyone, which is, you know, at first, people are what is going on here? <laughs> um, but what I've found is just ten simple breaths really change your whole perspective about being present. I talk a lot about this, that I am somebody that lived my life for a lot of years thinking about what was next, what was next, what was next. And unfortunately, That doesn't allow you to enjoy the moments, right? And at some point, you start to realize that the moments aren't infinite.
1: I mean, it's only been a couple of months for me, but it has made a difference. The most surprising difference has been when I wake up in the middle of the night, because my mind is busy, I can use the breathing techniques to get myself back to sleep. Totally. And just being conscious and focusing on my breathing in that way has been, I mean, that's been surprising to me.
2: Yeah. Last thing that I'll add is it has helped me get in touch with something that I think is a direct correlation with happiness, which is gratitude. Mm. And for me, when I take the time to think about what's important and just let my mind sort of be at ease that it's all okay – Uh, I can get very in touch with gratitude. And I, for me, gratitude, the, the amount of gratitude you have is a direct correlation with how happy you are.
1: No question. And it's also, it's one of, I have five things that you have to do in order to be financially successful, and it's number five. You've got to figure out some way to give back that's going to make you happy because nothing else quite makes you as happy. Totally. As figuring out some way to give back. Um, well, I'm glad you're here.
2: Well, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that we now share meditation together.
1: Um, your career has been wide-ranging. You you have started companies, you've run companies, you've invested in companies, but you started in investment banking. Yes. Tell us how you began there and what happened
2: So when I got out of college, there were only a handful of things that people did if you wanted to have a more mainstream career and um, consulting or investment banking. And so I had the good fortune of becoming an investment banker, went through a very stringent training program. um, And I think I was pretty good at the content of it, but it became really clear to me that it it didn't feed the soul part, the part of me that... Feels like you can have a job and love the content, but if it isn't speaking to you about values, if it isn't speaking to you about the things that are important, about impact in your life. So um, I went to business school after I was an investment banker uh, at Wharton and um, had the good fortune to come back to be an investment banker. I I needed to try it twice Mm -hmm. to make sure. And then left investment banking to start my first company. In the days when being an entrepreneur coming out of Wharton was not something that most people did. No,
1: that is a newfound thing, yes. right? Now it's all entrepreneurs all so, the time. But it definitely wasn't when I was there yep. in the in the eighties. I wasn't even in Wharton, but when I was right. around okay. uh-huh. Wharton, what was the first company you launched?
2: A company called the Spectrum Group, which was a uh, sort of boutique M and A and then consulting firm, and. We morphed ourselves into market research, and we were some of the first people that were able to create panels of market research on this thing called the internet, which was brand this new. Thing. Yeah, the, before people, uh, you know, used to sell surveys that uh, send surveys in the mail and, or do them over the phone. We were like, "Geez, couldn't you get a panel together on the internet?" And so we had the good fortune. I, it was seven years, and I sold it to a public company. So that was a great thing. And um, a great experience, and then I had a two-year earnout, and that was an interesting experience.
1: It is interesting, isn't? It? I've heard from other people being at the company that you started, and being beholden to somebody else. It's
2: um, it's like going from uh, the side of you that is for me was the sort of genius creation side. To the rules side, <laughs> which <laughs> I'm not so good at. Uh, in life, I, you know, you learn a couple of times that the rules part. If you're not good at that, just stay away from places where the rules are important. Uh, but I stayed for my earnout, and I learned a lot of good things. And ten days after it, I was gone. So
1: often happens. Yeah. Did you go directly from there into the VC world? No, I
2: went to a, what was then a very, very young early stage company called ETrade. Ah, So kind of took my skills, knew some of the senior management there from Spectrum Group when I worked with them. They were Schwab, ex-Schwab people and uh, had the good fortune of being involved in one of those things that, you know, what do you mean people can manage their own money? You know, that was blasphemy in those days. So that was really a fun thing and learned a lot about uh, online consumer businesses.
1: Along the way, you ended up at a travel company called Olivia. Yes. What was that like?
2: So it was my big stumble in life. I had had a pretty charmed career in many ways, and most of the things that I had gone to do had gone pretty well. And um, I went in to take over for a founder. And this was the classic four and a half years into it. I got fired in a hotel lobby, not knowing that I was going to get fired. Whoa. Because the founder
1: face to face?
2: Face to face. Hadn't seen the founder in about six months. Thought I was just having breakfast with them.
1: How did you take that?
2: <laughs> well, I had two reactions. Um, one was, uh, it was a Monday at 9.30, and I'll never forget, I walked outside and the sky was beautiful, and I had a convertible, and I picked the car up from the parking lot and I put the top down, and the first thing that went through my mind was, wow, people can see the sky on a Monday morning at 9.30. Like, all these people are walking around. They're not working. This is an unusual situation. And then the next piece was I went home and completely freaked out uh, because everything that, you know, I thought was important was now just right in front of me. Uh, Public humiliation, accusations of things that were completely untrue turned into a lawsuit, which I'd never been in. And, you know, it was a lesson in so many different things in my life that I think just completely was the time in my life where I just took a complete turn.
1: What'd you take away from it? I mean, I've been fired. I've talked about that on the yeah. show. We ran a story on Her Money about yeah. women who've been fired. And just because I think it's important if you've been fired to just say, yeah, it's yeah. happened to me too.
2: Um, I took a lot of things away. Uh, I took away that I was not reading signals, right? Like, you know, in in Amy's mind, it just happened out of the blue. And when I go back and think about it now, there were so many different things that I should have been paying attention to. Second thing is that um, I confused a whole bunch of things, right? I wasn't really happy there, but I wasn't willing to risk my happiness for what I thought was, you know, a career opportunity, money, prestige. And at the end of the day, it was a favor to me, and I'll, I'll never forget this, that I went directly into therapy. Um, my therapist said this great thing, which was, I want you to take the picture of the person that fired you, and I want you to put it on your mirror because that is your best friend. So I want you every day to look at that and face into the storm about all the emotions, all the rejection, all the hurt, all the embarrassment, all the humiliation, and then check in with yourself about who you really are. Who are you? How long did you leave that picture up? A year. Wow. And, you know, in the, what I think happens, and actually subsequently, I used to have a theory that I would never fund anybody, and it's still to this day, that couldn't answer the question, tell me something wh- that went wrong in your life, and what did you learn from it? Because I think our society is very focused on, we're all winners. Right. Like, I'll, I'll remember that um, I coach my daughter's basketball team, and, you know, I'm competitive. And I would have parents come up to me afterwards and say, you have to say to the girls, we're all winners. No, <laughs> And my response to that was, but that isn't true. We aren't all winners. right? Yeah, life isn't about winning. Life is about a journey, right? Life is about finding your happiness, whatever that genius is that you have. So I just went literally back to square one. Um, I got a personal coach, you know, did a lot of therapy, did uh, subscribe to learning how to meditate, learning the Enneagram. I don't know if you know the Enneagram, it's such a fun thing. No, e- E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. You should look it up. Okay. And it's a theory that there's nine personality types in the world. And, you know, it's why people act the way that they do in stressful situations. And I started to just understand myself, the pattern of behavior, the things that I w- were, was denying myself. And I just decided that I was going to just throw it all up and, on the wall and see where it, see where it fell.
1: Amazing story. Yeah. I'm going to look, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. That's yeah. my homework.
2: Yeah. Uh, and one last piece of this. When I came home, uh, Madison at the time I think was three or four, and um, I couldn't figure out what to say. She was on her way to preschool, so, you know, I was very buttoned down, right? So I had to tell her. Right. I was four. So I said, um, Madison, guess what? Good news. Mommy works at home now and she took me by the hand and ran me upstairs to my office mm-hmm. and waved her hand to the chair and said mommy welcome and it was like the universe saying to me all those things that you have thought were important just your kid just told you what was important so
1: amazing thank you for sharing thank you we've seen so many online consumer businesses launch in The last, I don't know, feels like few years to me, we just had Heidi Zak on on the show. She was terrific. We've had the founders of Rent the Runway and The Skim. And and it's, you know, it's an interesting space because people, I think, feel – it feels much more like a personal relationship with these online brands than it does often with a store that you walk into.
2: Yeah, I think that – first of all, I think there's a massive sea change going on where consumers – are very comfortable shopping in what you know in categories that otherwise you'd either walk into a store like trying on a bra, mm-hmm. or in the Warby Parker case, you know, putting on glasses, or in the Rent the Runway case, uh, you know, apparel. Um, I think there's a, a generation of consumers that are growing up with these direct to consumer brands being their ordinary situation. I also think that one of the problems in retail historically has been very little relationship to the customer. And I believe that if you do these businesses well, your brand has a certain amount of authenticity. You have a direct relationship in speaking to them, right? You're not speaking to them through somebody else's store. Right. You actually have a relationship, and they're gravitating to you because the message somehow is resonating. You know, in our case, it's around authenticity and giving a woman confidence, which your hair I'm glad you started by. Your hair, by the way, does look terrific. Thank but, you so much. Um, you know, it's <laughs> it, it's one of those things that when your hair looks great. Or, you know, in Heidi's case, and they're terrific, you know, when your bra fits well, you – these are things that are not um, small – you know, these are things that matter in life.
1: You sort of watched the market as a VC before you dipped a toe into it. And I don't want to glide over that portion Mm -hmm. of your life because I know there are a lot of women listening who are thinking they might someday want to start Mm -hmm. a business or invest in businesses as VCs do. Um, What's – What did you learn at being a venture capitalist? Um,
2: So I learned a couple things. One is what would be the elements that would create a successful business, right? Tell us. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're, first of all, an early stage investor, you're really looking at three things. You're looking at total addressable market, right? Is the size of what someone's focusing on big enough to scale? Because what I try to tell people all the time Many companies are great investments. They're just not venture investments. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is venture investments, there's an expectation you're going to 5 to 10x the money. So you better make sure that it can be a a big business. Second thing is that there has to be product differentiation. So in all the businesses you talked about where you've had people here, they're very different than what anyone's done in those categories. So there has to be something that differentiates them. And then the third thing is it's always about the team right? Everything in life comes down to people. Mm -hmm. Um, Starting and running a business or funding a business is really about do you have confidence that this group of people has the fortitude and the resilience, and I really mean resilience, to um, uh, handle whatever gets thrown at them because it won't be anything close to what you thought it was going to be when you first started.
1: How long does it typically take these businesses to figure out what they're doing?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I don't think there's a standard answer. I think there's this stage called um, minimal viable product, mm-hmm. which people talk about a lot, which is spending the beginning of the business figuring out what is the business. You know, what is that product? How do you price it? What are the value propositions for a customer? Why would somebody buy it or not? When they buy it, do they stay and buy more? Right. Those are all minimal viable product. In our case, we ran a six-month beta with about 1,000 women, and we were trying to vet for what business model at what price point, what constituted buying a second box, third box, fourth box. So by the time we launched and went to market, we had some understanding of what we should be doing and what we shouldn't do. And, you know, we uh, this summer will be have uh, launched five years, and, you know— uh, Hair color was the category, and that's great. We're in hair color, but there's so many things that we've learned. And I really believe that businesses are really all about paying attention to what I call the pattern recognition.
1: I want to get to that pattern recognition in just a (laughs) second. But before I do that, let me just remind everybody Her Money is sponsored by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is all about helping you demand more from your money and making your savings work as hard as you do. Because all of those things, when you put them together, can help you reach your financial goals faster. It starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. And from there, Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options and different ways to grow your savings. You can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. We are talking with Amy Errett, founder and CEO of Madison Reed. So let's come back to that pattern recognition. Because it sounds like you're talking about principles, that whether you are a small business, you're hanging out a shingle, whether you're a large business that Mm -hmm. you're trying to scale, these can be applied to help you towards success.
2: Yeah. Maybe another way to say it is continuous learning, right? That I, I think about pattern recognition in all the parts of my life. Like, what are the things that I've seen before that worked, and what are the things that I should avoid that haven't worked? And I think it's the same thing in a business. I think many times younger entrepreneurs are focused on what is the prize rather than what is the process to pay attention to to get to the prize, right? And, you know, we spend a ton of time, really good example, we measure net promoter score on a second-by-second basis. We spend more time on the detractors and understanding the people that have been unhappy with us Mm -hmm. than we do necessarily the people that are super happy because what we've learned is in fixing the, where those problems lie, if you have the courage to listen to your customers, they will tell you everything. You just have to have the courage to hear it, not be defensive, and then uh, also have the courage to make some, you know, sort of radical changes if, if you need to be.
1: What has listening made you change? Because that's a hard thing to do, uh, listening I'll, to people who don't like you. Yeah.
2: Well, first of all, m- my deep belief is if they cared enough to tell you, there's probably a reasonably good chance that you could change their mind, Mm. right? They are really giving you a gift.
1: By taking the survey.
2: Taking the time, yeah. yeah. So we learned a lot of things. Our packaging was, you know, not sustainable, and here we had a brand with better ingredients, but we had non-sustainable packaging. That was a clear brand miss right in the beginning. We learned that there were a handful of our products that women didn't feel covered gray, which was their real reason for wanting to color their hair as well, and it led us down the path to parallel and to develop a whole additional line of products that were about gray coverage specifically. And that was a gift, yeah. right? Because if we just literally, and I see this in entrepreneurs, don't listen to that, just blow it off. It's not important. Um, it told us something that completely changed the trajectory of the company. We listened to the fact that 35% of women have highlights, and so we needed to have a highlight product. Like these are all, we, learned, we listened that, When weather was bad and our delivery systems were too slow, that you know people in the Midwest had their color freeze outside, right? So we learned a different way to package, right? So these are all really important things. We could have addressed it as, you know, this is just feedback.
1: Who cares? But we addressed it as, geez, we better figure these things out. We just finished a listenership survey for this podcast, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the responses in a. Completely different way, because well, I think good. that's yeah. No, I think that's really, really good advice. Kelly's going to do it too, just for the record. <laughs> um, <laughs> she is now. She is no. <laughs> she would have done it anyway. Great. One of the things I know you did with Madison Reed was go offline, open some brick and mortar hair salons. Is is, and this is a shift that we've seen in um, financial services as well. The the Wealth front and betterment who who started with mm-hmm. online only have added humans back into the equation. Is this where we're heading in retail? so that this term that gets used a lot is
2: omnichannel, right? So you know the the thought process is that you need to be everywhere because can you know most consumers don't live all their life online shopping or picking financial products or they don't go to physical retail all the time. They have to do both. In our case, the most interesting part is 52% of women in the U.S. color at home, and 48% go to a salon. So in our case, it wasn't a function of, geez, let's throw out brick and mortar because that's easy. Mm -hmm. It was a function of there's almost half the market that we couldn't speak to, and 25% of women are dualists. They're that gray that they're actually coloring at home and going to a salon. So we knew that there was a market opportunity for us, which is why... We call them color bars. They're faster, so you're in and out in an hour. They're less expensive, so they're $70, and they're with better ingredients. So we felt like our real trick there was disrupting the salon industry by something that women want and need, just like we're doing online.
1: How did you come up with the idea? How did you know that hair color was right to be disrupted?
2: Um, It really came out of uh, some personal story of my uh, friends who – Literally, in almost every gathering, uh, after a glass of wine or two, would start complaining about their personal care routines, and hair color became this thing that I was hearing. Like, I am in the salon, you know, I have to go now every five weeks, every four Ugh, weeks, every three I weeks, know. and and uh, I don't know what they're using, and now I'm starting to see my hair thinning, my hair being drier, not liking brittle, right? And so I I just started thinking about it, and then literally walked down the aisle of Walgreens one day picking up prescription and happened to be in the hair color aisle, and I bought 60 boxes of hair color. <laughs> there was no, like, logical reason, and I just took him home, and I was just like, oh, my God, this is terrible. This is torturous. How could you, tor- how could- in the name of beauty, let's torture her right. to feel beautiful. It's so paradoxical, and it is so classic to my whole belief that beauty, women in particular, have this um, way that we the media has positioned what is beautiful right and you know many women spend their whole life with that eye on that prize Um, and I I find that to be um, not true and so this is why like in all of our photos uh, at Madison Reed uh, we don't touch retouch photos
1: What do you make of the fact that gray is the color of the year? Is that hurting your business? No,
2: that's terrific. You know, um, fashion comes and goes. Um, You know, uh, and I think there's, frankly, there's a certain time when women just say, I'm not going to color anymore, and that's great. I like our chances for all the years that people are coloring, but I love the fact that our ingredients are terrific, and I love the fact that we're enabling people to own their own beauty and be confident.
1: And I would imagine that on the other side of the the equation with the purple and the greens and everything, you're getting a little pop. We are getting a pop. Absolutely. I know that your daughter, Madison, that you named the company for, um, actually worked there last summer. She did. So Packing boxes. Uh, what? <laughs> so first of all, why did you put her to work in that way? How old is she now?
2: Just turned 16. What were you hoping she would learn? Hard work. I don't subscribe to giving your children, handing them things before they deserve them. Or, you know, I came from a working-class family, so maybe this is just a working-class story. But I believe that I have so much gratitude in my life because I've spent the time to sort of understand what life could be like without that. And I don't want her to grow up in a world where things are handed to her. I think it's not doing your children service. We have a very radical viewpoint about how much money to leave your kids or not and those kinds of things. So I could go on for a long period of time about this subject because I just think you do your children a disservice for them to not have to go through life's trajectory. Life's trajectory has a lot of bumps in the road. Absolutely. And I believe that growth comes out of when things aren't gone so well versus when it's all, as human beings, we're all, you know, it's all swimmingly great when it's great, right? Yeah. We don't learn much. Is she
1: coming back this summer?
2: She actually just told me recently that she was thinking, she said, it would be easy for you to give me a job, and maybe I should go earn a job somewhere else.
1: Nice. Well Absolutely. Done.
2: She's not moving very fast about that, but it's a good theory.
1: <laughs> so what is next for you? What's next for the company, but maybe what's next for you beyond the company? It's a great question.
2: Um, so I'm a partner at uh, the venture firm that did the Series A, so I invest as well. I don't know what's next for me. I'm one of those people that my career has never been uh, a very, you know, straight-line trajectory. I've always just whatever's been presented. I'm intrigued by teaching. I teach uh, some business classes in at, at Stanford and then some stuff at at Wharton. I like that. I like giving back. I'd be open to politics I'd be open to nonprofit work where I do a lot I spend a lot of my time on nonprofits and believe in giving back but I don't know well you know I'm excited about the future and thank meditation for that
1: me too yeah. and thank you for being here this was terrific I really appreciate it thanks for having me. Kelly has found her way into the studio. (laughs) Snuck in. The quick five steps into the studio through the very heavy door. Hi, everyone. Um, That advice to put the picture of the woman who fired her on the mirror. So can I just say, I hate the guy who fired me to this day. (laughs) Really? to this day. If I saw him in an airport, I would not speak to him. No way. I would not talk to him. Not
0: even in, like, a fake, friendly way?
1: No, I would go to the, like hide in the bathroom. You would, you would just, no, turn I would around.
0: not, I wouldn't talk to him. No. Wow. Why, why would I talk to him? He fired me to be the bigger person because no, I'm just gonna, I'm <laughs> gonna guess that you're probably more successful than he is. He's pretty successful, but no, I wouldn't, no, I'm not talking to him. I hope he listens to Elliot's this. not talking to him either, <laughs> by the way. Oh, this is fun. It's interesting. Has he ever tried to reach out? No. He doesn't like me either. By trying, the way, I'm trying, like to, he, I'm trying to gossip. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anyone that I would do that to. Maybe like ex boyfriends, but oh, yeah. I've done a, I've put in a lot of time and mental energy in forgiving, not mm-hmm. forgetting, but forgiving. I'm a very much I, I, uh, I adopt the forgive, don't forget. Okay, that's my iteration of that. You're a much healthier human being than I am, but. It might be healthier to forget sometimes. Maybe. Yeah, I definitely am. A, I analyze the past all of the time, and I really love her point too of being caught up in the past or thinking so much about the past or what's next, what's next, what's next. And that also really resonated with me. It, it's it's either you know what's already happened or what I'm thinking about will happen next, and I'm I need to focus more on being present. Right. What now? What now? Like these questions. Our first question is from Kim. First of all, I just wanted to say I love listening to your podcast, and it has really changed how I view my finances. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Kim. I have a 401k-related question. I'm changing jobs in the next month, and I was wondering what to do with my 401k. My new company does not have a 401k as it is a small company, so I'm trying to figure out if I should keep my 401k with my current company, roll it over into a Roth IRA, or if you have any other suggestions. I only have about 28000 in my 401k, and I am 31 years old. You absolutely
1: could leave it with your former company. You're allowed to do that as long as you have $5,000 in the plan. If you are happy with the options that you have for investing that money and if you are not unhappy with the fees because 401ks do have fees, then I would say leaving it is a really good thing to do, Mm -hmm. um, fine thing to do. You may want to leave it for a while, change it down the road if it gets cumbersome to manage. But the rolling it into a Roth is a little more complicated. You can't roll a 401k directly into a Roth. I assume this is a traditional 401k. What you can do is roll it into a traditional IRA and then do a Roth conversion. But that involves paying the taxes on the money that you are converting because you didn't pay them. You got a tax deduction when you put them into the 401k. I wouldn't suggest doing that Roth conversion unless or until you have money outside that plan that you can use to pay those taxes. Roths are good for 31-year-olds. Let's be very, very clear (laughs) about that. Roth IRAs are really good, really flexible. If you think that your tax rate is going to go up over time or that tax rates in general are going to go up over time, Roths are really, really beneficial. But you don't have to convert all of it at one time. If you want to convert a chunk, you can convert a chunk. Mm. So there are a lot of different options. I just want to make you aware that there is a
0: cost to that transaction. Mm -hmm. And I forget that it's apples to apples, or it has to be apples to apples Mm. first, and you can't jump from traditional to raw. Roth.
1: It's a three-step
0: process. I mean, it's super
1: easy. It's not like... The firm where you roll it over is not going to hold your hand and help you do this. Mm. They will hold your hand and help and then you do this. They charge want you. You know they well, want. Will the... they charge
0: you for it? Like will no, they, no, no. Will They let no, you no, no, know. No, 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 no. They they will
1: they will help you through the process. Got it. Um, but they're not going to. You know there will be a charge for having an account for mm-hmm. having an IRA or having a Roth. But it's not a lot of money typically.
0: And we haven't talked about this in a while on the show, but the concept of uh, diversifying the types of withdrawals you'll have in retirement. So there could be something beneficial about keeping them, you know, traditional and Roth or, you know, having yeah. those two types so that you are diversifying the tax. Is it what? Is it's it? It's the
1: tax situation. So yeah. essentially what you're setting up for yourself is a system whereby when you get to retirement, you can pull from different pools of money. And um, that may help you. A lot of people these days work in retirement, and you may not want to draw money out of an account in a year where you've got a very, very high income tax rate because you've made a lot of money. You get charged more on funds coming out of a traditional IRA in those years than you would in a year where you didn't make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So having a pool of money that has already been taxed Mm -hmm
0: helps. That's exactly what I was gonna say, verbatim. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll do um, one more. <laughs> wait, be, before we before
1: we wrap that up, I think so I think essentially what you're suggesting is forget it. Sorry,
0: no, 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 please do.
1: <laughs> no, I think I think essentially what you're suggesting is a fine move for right now. Leave the 401K funds alone, and then make your future
0: contributions into some sort of a Roth, so you level the playing field. Thank you. And we'll do one more from Lisa. My husband and I were married this year, and then we are just starting out. Charitable giving is important to us. I'm in graduate school, so together we make about sixty thousand. We have no debt and save for retirement and other goals. We give around seventy-five dollars a month in recurring donations, but we actually save five percent of our income for philanthropy and are hoping to increase that number to ten percent over the years. Because of this, we've saved around two thousand for future charitable giving since our wedding this summer and Barring misfortune, that number will quickly increase. I would love to learn about donor advised funds and charitable trusts and how to make the best use of this money, which is currently earning one point two five percent in a savings account. What do I need to consider in getting started? This is uncharted territory for us. This is amazing. I know. Wow. So it's
1: a really, really good question. Um, A donor advised fund is an account that you open in a place, it's an account you open at a place like Fidelity. I have a donor-advised fund, and I actually have it with Fidelity. You put money into it when you're able to put money into it. It is invested. You don't have control over those funds. You've essentially given them away in the year when you make the contribution to the donor-advised fund, but they're managed so that hopefully the pool of money continues to grow. And then, Whenever you decide where you want to put that money to use, you make a grant from your donor-advised fund. And you have to type in, you know, I want to make a grant in Mm -hmm. this amount to this organization. It has to be a charitable organization that passes muster. And then they make it happen. The nice thing about donor-advised funds under the new tax law Mm -hmm. is that if you are trying to qualify to itemize and you can't do it every single year, you can make bigger contributions to donor-advised funds in a particular year to boost the amount that you're actually saving to give away to charity while maintaining a level contribution payout to your causes that you want to support. You get the credit for the charitable donation when you put it into the donor-advised fund. Okay, When they give it to charity, you don't get credit for it then. Oh, okay. So, so that's it, how you... So essentially, if you are looking, let's say you've amassed enough money so that when you look at all your deductions together, mm-hmm. you will qualify to itemize. Your, your deductions are over the new threshold of $12,000 yeah. for singles, $24,000 for married couples that is the standard deduction. Mm-hmm. But you're only there because you were able to take the 2000 that you usually give to charity in 2018 and the 2000 that you usually give to charity in 2019 and move it all into 2019, but what you want to avoid is having the food bank that relies on your monthly contribution feeling left out in the wind. Mm. And so you put your money in the charitable fund when it makes sense for you, but then you parcel it out over the time period that the charity has come to expect it. Got it. That was helpful. Does that make sense? That makes a lot more sense. Excellent. Yeah. But I like these. I think I think they're great, and
0: most of the big financial institutions have them. That is so cool. And Lisa, it's awesome that this is already a priority, or has always been a priority for you and your now husband. And as we heard from Amy Arrett, it absolutely is a boost to your happiness. Yes, I loved her piece on gratitude and how it is. Or she attributes that to her happiness. Yep. Yes. Well, thank you, Jean. And thank you, everyone, for asking your questions. We have an exciting new email that you can send your questions to. It's mailbag at hermoney.com. Years in the making. So if you have any questions, please send them there. Or you can find us on Facebook and our private Her Money Facebook group and ask your questions there. But you might get answered by ladies in the group before you hear from us because we have so so many women on (laughs) it in that group. It's amazing. Thank you, G. Thanks, Kelly.
1: And in this week's Thrive, if we have learned anything in the past month, it's that there is a right way and a wrong way to get your kid into college. But just because you aren't out there bribing coaches doesn't mean you aren't making a few mistakes of your own. If you fail to have the other talk with your child, the talk about student loans and the impact that borrowing could have on their future, you are doing them a huge disservice. Today, millennials spend nearly one-fifth of their annual salaries on debt repayments. That's according to a survey from Citizens Bank, and nearly six in 10 borrowers regret taking out as much in loans as they did. Thankfully, the student debt conversation is not one you have to have on your own if you're not comfortable. Financial aid officers at your local college can explain the borrowing process and the repayment process to you and your child so that everybody understands what they're in for. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can hear it on a prior episode of the Her Money podcast. Founder and CEO of IvyWise, Dr. Kat Cohen, talks about reigning in the cost of college and even the cost of applying herself. You'll find that in episode 126. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Amy Errett. We loved having you here. If you are enjoying this show, we hope that you're telling your friends about it. We also hope that you are a subscriber at Apple Podcasts and that you have left us a review. And if you haven't, take a minute and just do that for us. We'd love to hear what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great guest. We'll talk soon.